So turn with me to Genesis chapter 37. As you go there, we are now entering into the life of Joseph. So this is the firstborn son of Jacob's favored wife. And I think that's an important little point to have in your mind as we walk through this chapter. <clears throat> We're calling it Sovereign in Salvation. We're going to see a young righteous man, Joseph, who's hated by his brother, brothers, but loved by his father. And the account is going to lay the groundwork for how God is going to eventually save this budding young nation called Israel. Nobody can see it. Nobody knows it. Although they even have a strong word of prophecy through a dream that this is going to be the case. But nobody anticipates about what, what's about to come. Nobody really thinks that this young guy, this 17-year-old uh, teenage boy who's having these dreams that seem like he's number one and everybody else is two or less, they, they just think it's a prideful um, exercise, but it's actually the Lord speaking to them. And not only that, what we see is that salvation is going to come through a, uh, one that is rejected, just as Christ was rejected by his brethren. Um, Joseph is rejected by his brothers, and he's going to be the one that brings them to, salve, uh, to save them. And it's the unrighteous acts of men that are going to actually produce the predetermined will of God to save. Now, that's a, that's a big topic for us to try and wrap our minds around. It's a little easier when it's Joseph. It's a lot more difficult when it's me and you. Because when we begin to wrap our minds around that, that working of God in our own lives, it can become a challenge. And we get the privilege of, of looking at his life and reading over you know, a handful of chapters how it goes from bad news to worse news to terrible news to, wow, this is awesome. And you know, we don't feel the stress and the turmoil and we're not wringing our hands because we know the, how the story ends. But the lesson is there for, to, for us to learn that God is sovereign in salvation. Joseph, although the Bible never states it, I believe it's safe ground to say he is a picture of Jesus and the salvation. Um, one author, uh, Ada Habershon, lists 121 ways in which Joseph is like Jesus. And we're going to read each and every one of them today. No, I'm not going to do that. But it may, may make you want to go back into the text and dig a little bit deeper. So let me just go through a few of the examples that he goes, uh, he lists. Uh, Joseph was loved by his brother. He rebuked the sin of his brothers. He was hated by his brothers and sold into the hands of enemies. He was punished unjustly. He was exalted and became the savior of the world, for all the world will come to him for bread he received a Gentile bride during his rejection by his brethren, and the list goes on. So you might want to take some time to go. and Look, I haven't read through all 121. Uh, maybe not so strong on some of these points, but anyway, it, it's a, a great study and something to have in mind. One thing that we're going to develop over the coming weeks is how do you deal with people that mistreat you? How do you deal with some kind of terrible experience in your life or in your family? What is the response that you should have when something rocks your world? And Joseph is going to become an example to us of that. And so I just want to put that in your mind, although it's going to take us a few weeks to work through um, his life. I, I just want you to have this in your heart and your mind. 
I'm really praying that as we go through these chapters and look at Joseph's life, there may be some of you who have had unfair, unjust, criminal things done to you that are a big hang-up in your life and they are holding you down, that you will be liberated by the truth that we see come from Joseph's life, the truth that we see in a sovereign God and how he can work and move. Well, with that as our introduction, let's go ahead and move into our passage. And we're going to begin in verses 1 through 10 where we read about more bad blood between brothers. Why more? Well, we've already seen the bad blood that existed between Cain and Abel. Cain took out Abel, right? Killed his brother. We've seen the bad blood between Jacob and Esau. And now we're going to see that bitter rivalry jump to the next generation between the 12 sons of Jacob. And so as we begin reading, let's look at verses 1 through 2, uh, verses 1 and 2, and we're going to see three reasons why they unjustly um, judge and then sell their brother into slavery. Verses 1 and 2. It says, Now Jacob dwelt in the land and where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. This is the story of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. So not justly, but unjustly, one reason why they couldn't stand the brother Joseph is because he was a rebuke to the way in which they lived their life. I believe that uh, Joseph gets piled on by commentators here. And then often we're like, well, you know, this is a, he's being a tattletale. That's the problem. Well, okay, he's 17 years old, he has older brothers, he's out with them, and he observes conduct that is unrighteous and not godly. And what is he supposed to do? Um, you know, maybe he did talk to them, and the scriptures are silent about it, and so he eventually went to his father. Well, we don't know if that took place, but we do know that he eventually brought it to his father. Well, what kind of bad things could these guys do? Well, maybe they were selling some of the flock and they were pocketing the money. Maybe they were still worshiping the other Canaanite gods that they had to deal with in chapter 36 when Joseph said, get these things away from you. Maybe there's all kinds of it more. We'll see a, a very disturbing chapter, um, chapter 38, and see that they are also engaged in prost uh, uh, lying with prostitutes. There's, there's a whole range of really bad things that maybe were going on. And he looked at it and he says, this is not right. This is not righteous. And he tells his father. And, um, you know, there is a place for us to confront sin and to deal with it. Well, they don't like it whatsoever. Um, so before we assign Joseph the title of tattletale, maybe we ought to let Scripture just speak for itself and that he gave a report of unrighteous behavior, hoping that dad could come and actually lead them and guide them out of it. You know, one of the other things is these guys were an angry, murderous group of people. I mean, these are not like nice people. You know, the, these guys, remember at Shechem, they, they wiped out the entire town. So these are people that are, you know, they know how to be evil. And so he reports this to his father. Verse 3, I would say, is a second reason why they have bad blood among them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children. Boom, problem. What are you doing and why, does they, why do they know it? And why do we know it? 
I mean, here we are, all these, you know, millennial later, and we know that he showed favoritism. This must have been quite significant because he was a son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Is it that Joseph really did something wrong, or is it that unwise action of Jacob set up Joseph to have no other relationship with his brothers other than a bad one? And I think that is a large part of it. It is a, it is a mistake. Now, let's, let's rewind a little bit. Who's, uh, who's the mother of Joseph? Rachel. And Rachel was the woman that Jacob wanted to marry. Of course, he was tricked in this, right? And Leah ended up being his first wife. But in the heart of Jacob, Rachel was always the first wife. And therefore, Jacob was the firstborn son. And so although chronologically he was not the firstborn, he was well down the line, in his heart he always was a firstborn that would get the the privileged status and the, the inheritance. And that favoritism was, was seen. And they, they knew that. And this created this hostility towards them. Is it really any surprise that a family of 12 sons by four different women has a lack of harmony in the household? I mean, this is just like a recipe for disaster. I mean, anybody says, well, you know, in the Old Testament, they had many wives. Okay, do you want this in your house? And there's nothing in this that you look at and say, oh, that, that's, that's the way a house should function right here. This is beautiful. No, there's nothing beautiful about this. It is a messed up, dysfunctional family. And yet this is a family that God has chosen to be the nation of Israel and through whom eventually the Messiah would come. You know, wisdom teaches us that all of our children need equal love and care. Can you agree with that? All of our children need equal love and care. Now, there may be a moment in a child's life, there may could be something physical going on in their life where you have to give some more attention to them because of some uh, needs that they have, but they all need to know that they are loved by us and that they are equally cared for by us. And so, you know, what our kids, you know, what they used to do. Who do you love more, Dad? It's like, I love all of you the same. You know, Tyler, I love you the most. You're my favorite son, the only son I had. Whitney, you know, you're my favorite oldest daughter. Megan, you're my favorite youngest daughter. They were all my favorite in their own way. And, you know, they, so they, it, was, it was something that they used to joke around. They'd get my phone, they'd go and they'd change, you know, the screen. And they would, you know, put their picture on there or something and say, you know, you know, Megan or Whitney, it's usually the girls who are doing this and saying, you know, Megan's uh, dad's favorite, you know, and I, would, um, I open my phone, I'm like, oh, okay, so I know who did this. But you know what? They know that they were equally loved and cared for by uh, both Rebecca and myself, and that is not, it wasn't put on, that was, that was genuine and that was real, and our kids need that. They need to have that sense of stability, and they need to have that sense of belonging, and when they, they feel like they are not belonging, then that can become a problem. And, and we see it right here. So in your house, love 
all of your children. Don't show favoritism because you will provoke them to wrath and you will create a needless, needless hostility between your children. Isaac and Rebekah had their favorites, right? Isaac's favorite son would have been who? Esau the hunter. And, and Rebekah, she loved Jacob because of the, fir, of the promise that he would be the one to whom that Abrahamic promise would come to. They don't learn from this and they just carry it out. So that's the second reason. All right. Number one, he rebukes them for their conduct by speaking with dad. Number two, he um, speaks uh, the favored standing, creates that problem. And number three, verses five through ten. Now Joseph had a dream and told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, Please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There were binding, uh, there we were binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brother said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I've dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? So he's having these dreams. I mean, again, some say, you know, he should have kept this to himself. I disagree with that. I completely disagree with the fact that he should have kept it with himself. Because what's going to happen in time is there's going to be a famine that's throughout the land, and he's going to be sold down into Egypt. He's going to become the, the second most powerful man in the empire. And then his brothers are going to be without food. There's going to be a grain shortage. But Joseph is going to be overseeing the abundance of grain. And they're going to come and they're literally going to bow down for him before him. And they're going to get grain. I think it's important that he told them that that was going to happen. So that they could know that the word of the Lord had spoken. So... Again, I think that Joseph gets kind of piled on a little bit here. Did he do it the absolutely perfect way? Well, Scripture doesn't condemn him. He's 17 years old. He probably did it like a 17-year-old. Okay, but, but, but we see him as a, a man, a young man, who's doing the right things. When you see what he goes through and the character that he has, you will have a hard time impugning his integrity on any level. And so he has these dreams, and this ends up creating a problem. They're going to come to pass, and I think he should have shared them just as he did so everybody can know. But instead of saying, wait a minute, time out, maybe the Lord is speaking to us. He speaks to us. We know that he speaks to us. He spoke to Abraham. He spoke to others. And now, Joseph, you're hearing from the Lord. Let's, let's seek him and see if this is it. No, they flatly dismissed it because their pride got in their way. And they didn't want to hear what God was going to do in somebody else. They only could feel the jealousy and the inappropriateness of what he had to say. It's a shame. So what place do dreams have in Scripture and in our lives today? Well, dreams can take on a prophetic message. Just, this is a perfect example. It's a, it's a dream that he had that was prophesying of future events that would take place. 
Joseph and Daniel are probably the, the two individuals in Scripture that were given dreams and the ability to interpret dreams that kind of surpasses all others. But in the book of Acts, New Testament, Acts 2, verses 17 through 18, as the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church on the day of Pentecost, and Peter was challenged with the question of what in the world is going on, he responds, and one of the things that he quotes from is from Joel, and he says, It shall come to pass in the last days, last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. So it says in the last days this will take place. So some people will have dreams, and some of those dreams, some of them, some of them, not all of them, don't try and make something out of every dream you have. It's going to be weird. And, and when you start talking to us and you tell us about every dream you have, we, maybe we don't tell you this, but we think it's weird, okay? So it's just don't make something out of everything, all right? So I, God can use dreams, though. And um, we see that God is actually calling many people to salvation through dreams, especially among, the, uh, among Muslims. We see many of them having dreams and coming to faith. So God can do this. He's done it in the past, and he says that he'll do it again in the last days. But we must be careful to not make more of dreams than the Word of God. It should not even be a close second. So says Jeremiah. Jeremiah 23, 28. The prophet who has a dream, let him tell a dream. And he who has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. But what's that last phrase? Or second, yeah, the last phrase. What is the chaff to the wheat? In comparison to the word of God that's come from the Lord and is revealed and recorded, it's timeless, it's full of truth. A dream is not on the same level as the word of God. So anytime somebody begins to elevate a dream or put more emphasis upon having dreams than getting into the Word of God, they're emphasizing the chaff above the wheat. The wheat is the Word of God. And so that is a priority. That is what we should be emphasizing. But we shouldn't say God doesn't do that anymore. And I read several commentaries that said God doesn't do this anywhere. So nowhere in the New Testament does it say, I'm quoting, Roughly, nowhere in the New Testament does it say that there will be dreams that will happen <laughs> in this age. And I'm like, really? I mean, I just look, Acts chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. It says it will happen. I understand and I can appreciate what they're coming from because people can really blow up the significance of chaff. And they can make it seem more important than the Word of God. And the Word of God takes a secondary seat. We're more excited to hear a dream than we are to hear a Bible study. And that's a problem. But to say that God can't do it when we read clearly that He will pour out His Spirit, it'll be a ministry of the Spirit. It's just not the workings of you know, your crazy thoughts in the middle of the night. God will pour out His Spirit and He can use those. I can think of two times I was thinking through this, and I think there's three times, but I can't remember the third one, so it's probably not worth repeating. But I can remember two times where I have had dreams. And um, both of them came, interestingly enough, just put whatever weight you want on this, both of them came at times when I was really seeking the face of the Lord and wanting to know 
What is your will? What is your desire? And one of them was when we were living in Australia. Uh, Rebecca and myself were missionaries there, and our visas were coming up, and we either had to renew for a visa, um, or we had to go home, and we had decided along with the pastor that if we stayed, we were going to go and plant a church, and we thought if we were going to go plant a church, we were going to be there at least five years. We've been there about two years, and if we're going to be there five years, then we're going to have kids. So like all these decisions are getting rolled into you know, the, whether we stay and renew our visas or not. So we're seeking the face of the Lord, and I'm calling upon him, and I remember having the dream, and it was not a, it was not a movie real dream. It was a, a, a uh, voice dream, if you will. Um, and it was my voice. It wasn't, there was no reverb on it whatsoever in my dream. Um, so um, it was just kind of, you know, it was like I was reading a scripture. I said, and, and what I can still remember it so vividly was, I said, depart and return to the land of your fathers. I woke up immediately. That's not me. I don't do that in the morning immediately. That's, it's a slow, anybody else are slow rise people? Okay. Some people wake up in the morning and say, good morning, Lord. And other people wake up in the morning and say, what? Good Lord, it's morning. And so that, that's, that's, that's kind of more where I, where I am. Um, I don't lay in bed. I still get up early, so don't worry about it. But, um, but, you know, so I woke up immediately and was wide awake. And I'm just like, depart and return to the land of your fathers. Is that a scripture verse? This is what I did. Yeah, that's not scripture. I'm going back to so that's not the Lord. But you know, when I, when I woke up again for the rest of the day, um, it was on my mind, and, it, and that did become the word of the Lord. Another time where it happened, when we were, um, uh, the elders were, were meeting, gathering, and the Lord had spoke to us that there was, a, there was some problems going on in the church. And um, the way he began to speak to it, I can't get into all that. It's a great story. Ask me later. But in the midst of seeking the Lord, the Lord... Um, just confirmed to me in a dream that there was a problem of sin in our, in our midst. And so um, that actually came to pass as well. So these are the ways in which, and interestingly enough, again, it was, and I don't remember the verbiage, but it was the same kind of thing. It was not a movie reel playing. It just was words. It was my voice that I, um, that if you will, that I, I could hear in my, my dream and the Lord just saying, yeah, there's a problem. And it turned out to be exactly true. So God can do that. The one problem I have with this is, is old men shall dream dreams. And both of them happened when I was young, so I don't, know, I don't know what to do with that, but oh well. So be careful with dreams, not to dismiss them as being nothing, but not to overplay them. And if somebody's going to say, I had a dream and these are the things that are going to come to pass, and that doesn't come to pass then it's not from the Lord. It's going to come to pass. And, um, you know, a lot of people lately have had dreams about political things and all the rest, and this is going to happen, and then it didn't happen, and now they're going back and they're redacting the dream and they're trying to readjust it. No, 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 you don't get to do that. You don't get to do that. If you're going to say this is the word of the Lord, then you, it's either true or not. And we need to pay careful attention. I don't think we need to go stone them, but I mean, we need, to, we need to wake up and like, okay, I'm noting that. I'm noting that in my heart and my mind. So these are the three reasons why Joseph is, um, I think, hated by his brothers because of the dreams that he had, uh, because of the, the favoritism, and because he rebuked their life. In verses 11 through 28, we see that, that 
those feelings develop into hostility towards Joseph. So let's read together. And his brothers envied him. Envy is that feeling of discontent or even hatred. So from discontentment to hatred that another person is enjoying happiness or prosperity. Feeling discontent or even hatred that another person is enjoying happiness, success, or prosperity. That's envy. And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Well, Jacob, you should have done something about it. You should have done something about it. Then his brothers went to feed their flocks in Shechem. Remember, this is where they destroyed everybody. And I tell you what, can you go ahead and put that map up? And you can hopefully be able to see it. And um, so, yeah, you know, they have him at the bottom. You see number one, and that is um, Hebron. That's where they were. They traveled to number two, Shechem, eventually to Dothan, number three. And the long red line heading south down to Egypt is where he's going to Go. So that kind of just gives you a, a picture of what's taking place. But let me read this. Verse 13, And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. So he said to him, Here I am, willing to do whatever his father wanted. Then he said to him, Please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring back word to me. So his dad's sending him out to check up on him which knowing that they envied him and the hostility was probably not a wise thing to do. But I think, I think uh, Jacob's about 170 years old right now, so he's not up for you know, cross-country travel. Now a certain man found him, and there he was wandering in the field, and the man asked him, saying, What are you seeking? So he said, I am seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said, They have departed from here, for I have heard them say, let us go to Dothan. We have a picture of Dothan today. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Now when they saw him afar off, even before he came near, they conspired against him to kill him. So you can see why they would want to go there and, and graze. I mean, it's, it's, it's good land for uh, flocks and stuff. I wonder, just knowing that later on Joseph's going to be sold into slavery, and he's going to end up in jail, I wonder if he ever thinks, man, I wish that guy in the field wouldn't have told me where my brothers were. Why did I ask for directions? If I would have just said, oh, well, they're not here and would have gone home, I wouldn't be in these circumstances. Does anybody else play that terrible what-if game that just eats you alive? What if I wouldn't? What if God is sovereign? God is sovereign in salvation. He's saving a nation and part of the salvation of this nation, I would say, is, a, is misguided instruction by Father Jacob to go check on the brothers that envy him. Um, sovereign in salvation is this man who just happens to be there, who just happens to know where these guys have gone, so he can give instruction for Joseph to go. But if Joseph wouldn't have gone, he wouldn't have been arrested. At least in this scene, he wouldn't have been. I mean, apprehended and sold into slavery and eventually arrested. What if? What if this wouldn't have? But, but he does know. So as he makes his way there, they see him. So Shechem is 50 miles, um, uh, so 50 miles from Hebron, and Dothan is 14 more. So this would have taken about four or five days for Joseph to get there. And um, when he arrived, they see him, and they're like, yeah, let's come up with a plan. Let's kill this guy. Let's kill this guy this one who's going to be the one to get the inheritance and rule over us. And, I mean, these are not, God, these are not godly men. 
These are ungodly men. Um, boy, we need to guard our hearts against envy. You can see how it develops. Again, envy, feeling discontentment or even hatred that another person is enjoying happiness or prosperity or success in some way. That can happen in material things. That can happen um, with the relationships that people have. That can even happen in some of the blessings that a person has in ministry. Or maybe even some of the natural talents and gifts that a person has. Or the looks that a person has that you don't. And that envy can get inside of you. And you can be, why didn't God do this in me? Why did he give it to her? Why did he give it to him? And this is a terrible way to live your life. Be content with what God has placed in your hand and rejoice in it right now. Because if envy is getting into your heart, you need to deal with that issue of your heart. And the best way to deal with that is to acknowledge that it's wrong and begin to thank God for what he's given to you. Envy is nothing more than saying, God, you made a mistake with my life. Because you haven't given me the things I deserve. You haven't given me the things I want. And if you really love me, you would give me these things. Is it any wonder that God hasn't given you those things? I mean, honestly. With that kind of attitude, with that kind of heart, is it any wonder that God hasn't blessed you with those things? You don't have them and you're messed up. What would it be like if you had them? And so the Lord is sovereign and the things that he places in your hands, the blessings that he gives you, the, the, the relationships that you have, the connections that you have, trust God. Thank him for what you have. Oh, I don't have much. Well, there's somebody that has less than you. Thank him for what you do have. You at least have salvation. So their envy, um, quite problematic um, verses 19 through 28, we keep on reading. Then they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. Or this, oh, look, the expert dreamer is, is kind of the tone of it, is coming. The professional dreamer is making his way to, there's a lot of sarcasm here. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit. And we shall say some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. Oh. They remember them. But Reuben heard it, the oldest, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring them back to his father. So it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they had stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him. And they took him and cast him into a pit, a cistern. And the pit was empty and there was no water in it. A cistern was a large hole in the ground that gathered rainwater. But this one was empty. And Reuben's not happy with the desire to kill them. He knows it's wrong, but Reuben fails. He's like, okay, you can put him in the pit and rough him up a bit, but I'm going to come back and save him. Come on, Reuben. Step up, have some guts, man, and say to his brothers, what is wrong with you? You want to kill our brother? This is wrong before God. It is a, it's wrong against Joseph, and it's a sin against our family. There is no way. If you're going to kill him, you're going to have to get through me. That's what he should have said. But you know, the fear of man is a snare, isn't it? 
I don't want to have a bad relationship with my brothers. I don't want to upset them. I don't like this little brat anyways, but, you know, I don't want him to be killed. No, he failed to stand up for justice. Boy, how that word has been twisted and manipulated today. Don't take the world's definition of justice. Allow the Bible to determine what justice is because it's all messed up. And I'm not going to, as much as I like to walk down that road, I'm not going to walk down that road right now. So while he's away, um, verses 25 through 28, uh, they sell him. Um, They sat down to eat a meal. Verse 25, they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels on the major trade route, bearing spices, balm, and myrrh, on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. Oh, well, I mean, you're so kind. I mean, and his brothers listened. Again, what if he would have said the righteous thing? The Midianite traders passed by, so the brothers pulled Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. 20 shekels of silver was the going rate based upon historic uh, discoveries of what you would sell a slave for at this time in history. So it's just, it matches perfectly with what's going on. So they sell him for 20 pieces of silver. So there's 10, uh, there's, you know, 12 brothers. Uh, Benjamin is not there. Joseph is out. So he leaves 10 brothers. So they're going to get two pieces of silver each. Imagine the guilt that they had to live with for two pieces of silver. That we're gonna, we know they're going to live in guilt because it'll come out later on when we look at uh, their lives before Joseph down in Egypt and they don't realize who he is. The guilt is there and it haunts them and it plagues them. It would seem like every time something goes wrong, I'm probably reading a little bit into that, but every time something goes wrong, they're like, well, this might be because of what we did. And that's what happens. You know, envy says, you know, it's yours. You're justified. Take it. You take it. You're deceived by your lust, and once you've done the unrighteous thing against a person, the enemy in your conscience is right there to pound you and say, that was wrong, that was evil. But how do you confess to this? Well, I mean, they could have confessed to it, right? They could have gone home and said, Dad, we did something terrible. We sold Joseph into slavery. I'm going down there to get him back. But they don't do that. And they they dwell, or they live with this... uh, conviction in their heart and mind as they should have right I mean this was wrong but here's the good news if you're one that has made a terrible mistake that still haunts you a year and five years and 20 years and 40 years later here's the good news there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ you can come and you can confess your sin that what you did was wrong and that it was sinful what I've done to somebody else, or even just, maybe it's not to somebody else, it's just against the Lord. You can confess that, and you can be released from that debt. You can be released from that guilt. And let me say this, if you're a brother or sister in Christ who has confessed your sin to the Lord and have repented of it, then walk in the freedom of it today. 
Choose to walk in the freedom. Well, it was so bad what I did. Yes, and Jesus paid for it on the cross. He has already suffered. He has already died. He has already risen from the dead. You and I, we do no honor to the name of Jesus by beating ourselves up for the things that Jesus died for that we've repented of. Be liberated from it. Well, people around me don't want me to be liberated. No, they don't. That, that's, that happens in this world. But hopefully it's not by another Christian. And if you are a brother or sister who's holding somebody under the thumb of uh, their guilt for what they've done to you or what they've done, period, and they've repented before the Lord and they've asked for forgiveness, let them go. Encourage them to go walk and run in the freedom of Jesus Christ. That's what the Lord does for you. And so there's liberation. These guys aren't going to get it for some time. But boy, what a mistake that they make. Psalm 7610 tells us that God makes man's wrath praise him. The wrath of man will praise God. What's that? God's sovereign in salvation. It doesn't even matter if men do wicked things like this. In the end, God is going to be praised. They're doing an unrighteous thing, but God is still fulfilling his will, even through their unrighteousness. It didn't have to go this way, but it did go this way. In Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 28, it says, And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. You're you're creator God. You're sovereign. Who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles... And the people of Israel, that's the whole world right there, were gathered together to do whatever, what does that say? Your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Even in the death of Jesus Christ, the will of the Father was being carried out because God is what? He is sovereign in salvation. He rules over the world. And he does what he wants to do. Yes, man has free will. I do not agree with the Calvinistic definition of sovereignty that says that God is so sovereign that man cannot make a single decision. I don't agree with that. I don't think it's biblical. I think that's a wrong definition. God is sovereign. He does whatever he wants. Man's free will is able to act and do the right thing or the unrighteous thing. But yet still God remains sovereign. And he cannot be thwarted in what he wants to do. So they're doing this evil deed, and yet look, here the Lord is, determining what he wants to do. And you know, the, the most treacherous act that has ever happened in human history has worked out to be the greatest salvation moment of human history. Just a few verses, we're going to wrap it up here. I want to read just a few verses from Psalm 37. Do not fret because of evildoers. Nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as a green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. 
Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. And he shall bring forth your righteousness as, the, as light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. That's the word of the Lord to you today if you're fretting. Stop fretting. Trust in the Lord. He's going to work it out. He is already working out. Well, I don't see it. Well, it took a couple of decades before Joseph is going to see that God was working all things out for his good and even the good of the people that had done him wrong. Trust in him. Wait on him. Don't take matters into your own hands. So we wrap up the story in verses 29 through 36 where we see that now Jacob is deceived by his sons. Interesting. His sons are going to deceive him. Then Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes. And he returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more, and I, where shall I go? Oh, okay. So we see that you're really only concerned about yourself anyway. So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a goat of the, a kid of the goats, and dipped the tunic in the blood. Then they sent the tunic of many colors that they brought and they brought it to their father and said, We have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? And he recognized it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn in pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes and put on sackcloth on his waist and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose. So he has more than one daughter. We see that there are, well, we only know of one, uh, Dina, but there are other daughters as noted there, arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. Then he said, For I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, and a captain of the guard. And we'll learn a lot more about him. Jacob had deceived his father by taking the skins of a goat and putting on himself and going in and pretending to be Harry old Esau. And now his sons have deceived him with the blood of a goat. And it's come all the way back around. This family is, they're, they're tricky. And they're deceivers. Jacob will spend the next 22 years in sorrow thinking that Joseph was dead. But the Lord had already told him something, hadn't he? What did the Lord tell, uh, to, uh, told Jacob? You're going to see your son, and one day you're going to bow down before your son. If he would have received that as a word from the Lord, for indeed it was, he could have saved himself 22 years of sorrow. He could have said, I don't know how, but I believe that even though it seems like my son is dead, that I will see him again because I have yet to bow down before him as the Lord spoke through my son. Boy, we need to cling to the word of the Lord when it comes to us. It will see us through some difficult times. So God is sovereign, and we have the promise of Scripture that he will save us. The Lord will save you and has saved you through his son, Jesus Christ, who was betrayed, who went down to Egypt, who had his uh, garment of clothing taken away, who was sold for silver, who was betrayed by his brethren, and he hung on the cross and he died for you so that Satan's evil scheme to take you and destroy you 
could not be accomplished. Men may do evil against you and your family or your business, but trust in the Lord. Do not fret because of evildoers. It may be 20 years before you see the work of the Lord fulfilled, but have faith. Wait. Stand patiently. God has not forsaken you. He's not forsaken you.